Okay. Uh, all right. It's fuck. It's a podcast. It's a podcast. We're doing a podcast, guys. I, I it's incredible <laughs> that we're we're back here again doing this. Technology uh, advances. Hello and welcome to Well, there's your problem. A podcast about engineering disasters with slides. I am Alice Caldwell Kelly. Uh, I'm the person who's talking now. My pronouns are she and her. Uh, I go. Okay, I'm 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 Justin Rosnack. I'm the person who's talking now. My pronouns are he and him. Uh, yay, Liam. Yeah, hey, Liam. Hi, I'm Liam Anderson. And uh, for those of you who left comments uh, in the past two episodes saying how happy you were that I wasn't there, uh, I'm back, haters. Die What's up? Yeah. So how's my dick taste? Uh, I'm here and you're not. So yes. I invite you to throw yourself into the sea. Yes. <laughs> and we're we're doing the introduction in a slightly uh, unusual order because I wrote these slides. Yes, this uh, is yeah, I didn't Alice help. episode. No, I know. Uh, I I thought I would help out with the workflow by doing uh, by doing an episode. Mm-hmm. And so what you see here is uh, a football stadium before a football match has started, and this is the Heizel Stadium um, in Belgium. This is sort of going to be a companion piece to our Hillsborough episode from ages and ages ago. So go back and listen to that. Um, also, I'm going to be drawing a lot of this from a, a long GQ article called Remembering Heisel by Robert Chalmers uh, that's, that's worth reading, so we'll put that in the description as well. Um, we're going to talk about some football, some soccer, um, and some, some social conditions in, in the 1980s in Europe. But in the meantime, we have to do the goddamn news. No delay there on account of it was... Uh... It was it yeah. was you doing no, the thing. No, you <laughs> swearing that you can't find the right drop. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. Um, well, I mean, our first piece of news is uh, nothing is good. Nothing good is allowed to happen. Yes. Uh, they recalled um, San Francisco's uh, progressive DA. Uh, what's his name? Chase uh, Boudin, Ch- I yes, think. That guy. I get, get mad at me if I'm pronouncing yeah. his name wrong. Um, um, He's he's not even that fucking radical man. His mom is way cooler than him. Um, that that's a some of you will get that. Um, he's so he, his deal was like moderate reform progressivism, not prosecuting some like shoplifting and drug offenses. Uh, and in exchange for this, the San Francisco Police Department decided to do a sort of undeclared strike, a bad kind of strike. Um. And that combined with San Francisco being sort of in the jaws of this crisis of poverty an and homelessness, shithole of a place, and an illogical oh, yeah. shithole of a place governed by uh, fascists who, you know, as as that one tweet that I saw said, fascists who think they're progressive because they go to sex parties. Yes, um, uh, because they saw a homeless person once decided that they could use California's very very stupid recall provisions to recall him from office, and it wasn't even close. He lost by like twenty five points. I'm um I, I, I am I've been confused about this. Isn't like the, the California recall like process just designed in such a way that it almost always works? Like, yeah, pretty much. It's like, you know, you just say, Okay, do you want to recall this guy, yes or no? Um and your your options are status quo or what's in this mystery box. <laughs> and most people go for the mystery box just regardless. We we cannot emphasize enough, do not go. 
into the mystery box. Don't, no. don't go for the mystery box. It's usually Just bad. Just like a, like a sort of philosophical approach. Yeah, we're anti all recall elections. We think California should still be under the thumb of Gray Davis. Exactly. Um, I mean, uh, well, remember is, Gary Conduit and his missing intern? Wow. Okay. Remember yeah. Sandra Levy? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. So this is this is of course immediately being spun by every uh, state and national level um, uh, outlet to that this is a huge defeat for the left. This is right. the voters sending a message that uh, you you shouldn't defund the police, which isn't something that he wanted to do. Which, which isn't uh, something that anyone has done. Um, no. No. Uh, the the you know you can't do woke culture war progressivism. Uh, instead, you have to support the cops and you have to give them a, a shit ton more money. I I gotta say, I mean, you know, if if people don't want uh, progressive DAs, it's the first time I've heard of it here in Philly, where you know Krasner cruised to re-election, no problem. Um, you know, I, yeah, like I, seventy thirty. Exactly. Yeah, it was. It was no contest there. I, I mean, and I, I don't know that we're more notably progressive than San Francisco, other than that we don't have California ideology here. We are um, more antagonistic. <laughs> That's true. I mean, the thing is, right? Every uh, every win for the left is very specific and uh, based right. on those set of circumstances, and every loss for the left is general and universal. This is true, yeah. And I'm kind of like, how much of this really is like anyone making a conscious conscious decision here versus just how the election is structured? I mean, here when they, we went to go reelect Krasner. They actually gave you. Here's the alternative option, and he stunk, and everyone knew he stunk, and and so you know they they're like even people who didn't like Krasner that much are like, well, I'm better than that other guy. Um, well, the really yeah, funny yeah. thing is that now uh, the SFPD and the San Francisco Board of Supervisors and London Breed have have fucked themselves by trying to fuck Chase Boudin over because they've put themselves in this position where now it's sort of like accepted truth that San Francisco is a sort of like fallen city. Um and it's it's like Gotham there and the you know the forces of order are useless. Which is kind of an unfortunate thing to be believed if you are the incumbent uh city supervisor. I'm very confused as to like what 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 they expect to happen with this um if, if they get a new DA, are they gonna like because like Okay, it's my understanding that crime is actually down in San Francisco. Oh yeah, yes, it is. from an objective standpoint. What's sure. up is homelessness. Yes, right? and, and, and associated that's, that's really nuisances, what they're pissed off right? about. Yeah, yeah. Well, what are they going like, to do? They're going to bring back a San Francisco icon, uh, one Inspector Harry Callahan, and he's going to take care of the homelessness problem his way. Rather than the way that the fat cats and the suits in City Hall want to take care of it. Yeah, because if they like want to take care of homelessness using the the carceral system, like the entire service industry is going to stop functioning. Like, <laughs> you think people don't want to work now? Uh, wait until you get rid of all the people who uh, actually work in all those jobs and throw them in prison. I mean, I don't know. Are they going to do like work release for uh, Starbucks? Uh, <laughs> I don't get it. <laughs> I, I I wish you hadn't had your hand on the lathe when you said that. Yeah, that would have been, I'm like, yeah, yeah. shit. I would have appreciated that, but it's fine. Yeah, but I, I guess the lesson to draw from this is that like you you may as well be a sort of uh, a raging communist who wants to abolish the police because I was about to say yeah, I mean that that is the way you'll be presented if you're not like if 
in our in our long and very one-sided bleeding Kansas mm-hmm. to yeah. uh, even the party of moderate reform within the law is uh, you know radical and extreme. I mean, this is just uh, this is just a massive media failing. I think you know. Oh the, yeah. You know, there's there's uh, it, it, every single like it, it, crime is just you know the way the way that people report on crime now. You would think it's like the bad old days of like the seventies in these major cities and the gangs have free reign on the street, you know, and it's just, that's not the case. And it's mass hysteria and it's on purpose. Well, it's like, I, uh, you know, we had that, uh, recent big shooting on South street, right? Hmm. Um, this was pointed out by, uh, my friend from college, uh, Aubrey Nagel, who does, uh, 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 a media accountability project. And really one good of the work th- at Reframe Philly. Yes. You should go uh, subscribe to her newsletter. Yes. Uh, and one of the things she pointed out was, you know, in the immediate aftermath of the shooting, the coverage was all like, uh, you know, wow, how did Larry Krasner personally arm these uh, shooters? As opposed yeah. to, this is where the shooting occurred. This is how you need to avoid it. So on and so forth, like actual useful Let information for people who live laws. there. Harrisburg, <laughs> and it, and, yeah. and it makes fuckers. people very, very, very afraid, right? Mm-hmm. Because people who are objectively safer than they have been in years yeah. are more terrified. And it's not like no one's saying that things in San Francisco are always nice, right? Mm-hmm. It's just that you have to be able to distinguish between you are seeing something that is unpleasant. Something that makes you feel bad, yeah. Like I don't know, someone fucking shoplifting baby formula because they have to feed their baby, or someone you know taking a shit in the street because that's the only place yeah. where they can fucking shit without paying for something, uh, and something that like endangers you. Um, and yeah. I, I just, I don't know. It's, it's just, it's so obviously and so coordinatedly this, this rat fucking. Yes. I, you know, I, rat I, fucking I, is a good word for it, and it's absolutely true because the same shit's happening in Philly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, and I, 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 I don't know what to say. Like, you, how are you supposed to, as a progressive elected official, fucking ride the wreckage of the United States down? Yeah, uh, as all of this other shit falls apart around you, you're supposed to like maintain, uh, you know, a nice, safe environment for people and their kids, so they don't ever have to feel, you know. See anything that, like, sad, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah exactly, like, exactly. I will say, progressive uh, DA is kind of a oxymoron. Progressive cop is sort of yeah, an oxymoron. I, I, yeah, I mean, sure. Yeah, but yeah. you know, it's also like a, a lot of the a lot of the problems that you know uh, the perceived problems are problems that have been caused by enforcement. I mean, you know, take a look at okay, if I'm in Philly, hypothetically, I might take the L somewhere and see that there's heroin everywhere, just every single place. Uh, hmm. Just all over the place now. Like that's not like an exaggeration. That's just nope, how it he's is. He's not now. lying. Yeah, folks. and 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 people are, you know, and it's like, why is this? It's because the police cleared out the big heroin encampment in Kensington because the real estate and guys they, wanted to move in there. So and they all won't that, do a goddamn you know, safe, safe injection yeah, site. Everyone yeah. who's out and using is using on the L at this point. You know, yeah. and and so. Now everyone's like, oh my god, they gotta do something about that. And what are you gonna do? Okay, build the fucking think, safe injection site like we told you to. I think I think perversely, this is one sort of uh, endorsement of an electoral strategy, which is uh people have been saying for a while, smarter people than me, that uh a, a DA is probably one of the positions that can make the most difference, as you say, uh yeah. to like everyday enforcement and to like uh, you know, criminal justice policy. Uh 
And the fact that it was this important to to get Joseph Boudin out of office, that it was like necessary yeah. to marshal all of the fucking forces of darkness against him. Yes. Uh I think kind of vindicates that. It's just, you know, a question of what that means if you know the the effort to elect progressive DAs leads to them being unseated anyway, you know? Nothing ever goes right, folks. Stroke. Speaking of in British news. Yes. No thanks. HS2 uh, got cut back again. Yeah. Oh, no. uh, uh, let me, let me, uh, as a return to favor, I will be Gareth. So we're going to do is take Jesus, <laughs> Jacob Rees Mogg. And we're going to. We're going to. That's right. Fire. And then we're going to fill. <laughs> something, something, his own anemic feces. With a hurley stick. Yeah. Um, yeah, so this is this is one particular spur of HS2. It's called the Goldborn Spur. It goes through um, uh, Warrington and Wigan, I believe. Uh, it would have connected the crew to Manchester Line to the West Coast Main Line, um, and that's gone now. Um, yes. That's that's gone in part because, uh, as you may be aware, our Prime Minister at time of recording, Boris Johnson, yes. was subject to a, to a no confidence vote uh, by his own party. Uh, and the MP who administers that that voting process, Sir Graham Brady, that's his constituency. He was against it. His constituents were against it, uh, and so it has been cut um, as part of a sort of transparent bribe to keep Boris going. It's, um, and it's it's wild how I invite you know, the residents of that place to commit sepico. You have a lot of you have a lot of, uh, have a lot of uh, these. Um, you know the way this project's been cut and cut again. You know one of the one of the arguments against it from the beginning is, oh, this is just a train for rich people to get from like London to Birmingham or London to Manchester, right? And sure. You no, know, you have a you had a wide variety of services that were enabled by the original design. You could take a lot of trains off the West Coast Main Line, so you could free up traffic for local services. You had all that sort of stuff. Every and decarbonization cut, too. Every, every yeah. time they cut something, it becomes less and less useful. And more like what people thought it was going to be. Um, That's true. That's a very know, good point. I, I, it, it, mm. it, at, at some point, it's going to be like, okay, why do we even bother buying the uh, UK loading gauge high speed trains when we're not actually going to be able to through run up to like Glasgow or Edinburgh or something? You know. It's, oh well, that's that's the yeah. thing because this this not only this creates a bottleneck on the West Coast Main Line, which is going to fuck everything local yeah. freight. Uh, you name it, but it also specifically fucks me, the one unforgivable crime, because this was the one constituent part of HS2 that would have cut journey times from Glasgow to London, and it's gone. So whatever HS2 becomes, I will not see any benefit from it. Uh, I, I just I, have to support it for the love of the game at this point. I right. think I, I saw again. a post that uh, <laughs> you might again. still get Ross, one get your ski mask. Get your ski mask. I think I saw a post that you might still get one train per hour up there. Maybe. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah, oh, I can, yeah, I can sit on the floor. You Fantastic. Want track headways, baby. Yeah, that uh, is. Uh, yeah. yeah, even the Northeast region. That will be 950 US dollars, yeah. please, oh Alice. Yeah, <laughs> tickets are going to be expensive. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's going to be fucking like first class prices for for second class. Fantastic. All this stuff uh, is going to have to be built at some point anyway. That's the other thing. Like, 
you, you yeah. know, once, once they get this thing operating, like everyone's going to be like, why don't we have that? And then they're going to have to build it. They could have had it earlier. It. You, but, know what, you know what? Because you don't deserve <laughs> it. Yeah. So this is, I don't, this is really, really stupid, short-sighted decision. Thank you, Boris, for being a moron, idiot, oh, dumb asshole. Piece of shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, this has been in the works for a while. Apparently Grant Shapps, the, the transport secretary, had given... We're not a real country. I don't, I don't know why we're named like this. Had yeah. given Graham Brady like verbal assurances that it would be quietly cut uh, at some point during like February, I think. But now it just has been. Um, at some point, so, we'll have to do a whole HS two episode because this is yes, a, this has been a debacle. Um, I mean, less of a debacle than California high speed rail, but still a debacle. <laughs> mm-hmm. That yeah. would be another episode. Um, Didn't we do California high speed rail? No, we, we did Caltrain modernization. Oh, my bad. Yeah. Mm, well, I guess the only the only thing we can draw from both of these is that nothing good is possible. Uh, everything is terrible. Yeah. Uh, the forces of darkness and evil will always win. Yep. Uh, and uh, with that in mind, it's goddamn news. Yep. All right, so now we have to we have to move on from all of that sort of depressing stuff to something much much cheerier, football hooliganism. Hell yeah! Uh, Yay! <laughs> so, some examples of which seen here. Um, so I actually looked into the history of sports rioting, and the first sports riot I could find was during the Byzantine Empire. The Nilo so, riot. Yeah. Oh yeah. So, so go listen to the Lions Live by Donkeys episode. I, I uh, listen more. to it. It's a good one. Yeah. So, Thanks, dude. So for as long as as sports have existed, people have wanted wanted to to fight each other about it. I think we we can all agree with that. Um, but what we're specifically talking about here is a phenomenon of nineteen seventies Europe. Um, and in order to understand that, I think you have to understand how shit Europe was in the nineteen seventies. Um, for a sort of like often governed by nominal socialists policy. Um, it was also like extremely poor, extremely unequal, d- corrupt as shit, like on every level. Um, and also, you had like the first generation of young people seen here who didn't personally remember either the war or its immediate aftermath, and who thought that the sort of post-war settlement was shit. Um, and I mean, we're going to be talking about football fans in England and Italy, two at this time uniquely dismal countries. Um, and it's it's sort of worth talking about what the vibes were at this point, right? Um, and the vibes of football at this point are cheap, nice, working class, very nice, uh, very very male dominated, uh, good, <laughs> very girls allowed. Very white. Uh, uh, not, I, I not. Can't do, I can't do the racism joke there. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> yeah, let's not do that. Um, <laughs> not, not very corporate is the other thing. Like, it, we're in the era of uh, sponsors being sort of like local, medium-sized business, right? Um, and in particular, well, John's Tobacco Barn. Sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, Megatronics, and um, also. Some kind You're of f- meat store. Yeah, <laughs> yeah big Dave's pies. Um, Doesn't call it, also, not, not called a butcher, it's just called a meat store. 
<laughs> let's have like, to go to the meat store. Quality in every cut. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but also, uh, uh, teams and players moved around less. Managers moved around less, and teams in particular still had very strong local identities. Um, like now, you get this phenomenon where you can kind of like shop around for a team to support. You can be like, I'm, I'm really into like Man United or uh, Liverpool or Everton or whatever, without having set foot in any of those places. And you see, That's me. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's the same reason I have like a, a an Oakland Athletics hat in my closet. Is oh, you know, you just you tragic because sweet I enjoy baby. I enjoy suffering. Um, the and A's also are because from Philly and always will be. <laughs> and also because like these these things are multinational businesses now that have increasingly uh you know are increasingly detached from you know areas from geography and from populations uh not the case at the time um in like there was not a question of shopping around for a football team to support in the 70s anywhere in Europe you were issued one at birth uh and you know, I just all I can say is thank God those days are over. Otherwise, I would be recording this wearing a Crystal Palace shirt. Um, oh, <laughs> maybe it's still like the some it's the case with some like franchises though. Like I, I, oh, I sure. don't think you're gonna get like too many, uh, too many like uh, like a, a, a Kansas City, a guy in Kansas City who was a fan of Millwall. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, have you seen have you seen those um, French NFL fan accounts? Oh my it's god! It's the funniest <laughs> fucking thing in the world because it will just be like a guy in I don't know Neuilly or whatever, who's like, you know, allez les aigles or whatever. Let's go legs. <laughs> That's right. Um, yeah, I mean, it, obviously, it's still the case. Like, I, I mean, fuck's sake, I live in Glasgow, right? Like, there's a uniquely sectarian dimension to to which football team you support here. Same to in Edinburgh with like Hearts and uh, and Hibs, but like, um, yeah, th- th- I think I would say that the the era of the corporate middle class season ticket fan was not yet upon us. Mm. Um, and there are like, there's there's a quote from the at the time this happened, chairman of the uh, English Football Association, that the way that you get modern football is Heisel plus Hillsborough plus satellite TV. Uh, those are the three components that make modern football what it is, um, and that's how it became gentrified in the way that it did. Well, I always um, sort of been interested in why this 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 kind of uh, behavior never never really happened in like American sports at all. Like you don't have yeah you don't have a baseball hooligan or like a or like a a basketball hooligan or a, no we 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 take out hooliganism and put in mass shootings in elementary schools uh, <laughs> a ho- a hockey hooligan is just the players um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, college football maybe to a point those yeah. fan bases can get pretty weird, but like I think it's maybe because and all these teams have existed for roughly the same amount of time, but in mm. uh, alice do do soccer teams ever move? Uh, very, very seldom. Um, I think that's maybe part of it is that the United States is so big, you know, it's rare that you'll, you'll have a rivalry with the town over or, you know, I mean, there's, there's somewhat of like a Red Sox Yankees rivalry, but those don't usually culminate in fights. I would like them to. <laughs> I would love to just beat the shit out of some 14 year old Yankees fan with a Jeter jersey on. Yeah. 
Yeah. Like st stadiums might move, but generally, like between towns, uh, I I don't think that's common at all. So okay. you you have that like base of support. Also, I think the other thing we have to talk about is like alienation and and boredom and disaffection. Yeah, uh, right. Like obviously, Americans were feeling those too, but there is a particular kind of grimness to nineteen seventies Europe. Yeah, Just yes. a malaise, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And the feeling of having like no future. Uh, of uh, of everything being pointless, I'm sure you know our yeah. listeners couldn't relate to that in any way. At all. Uh, Do not part. listen to the Sex Pistols. Yeah, listen to the Clash. <laughs> yeah, listen to the Clash. So, with that in mind, we have to talk about uh, fashion because a lot of these guys were, as a lot of alienated white working class men were, drawn to fascism and were drawn to things like skinhead fashions. Um, and so your seventies football hooligan is Doc Martin's shaved head, right? Right. Um, and this is this is a problem because um, they're very easy to identify. If if your football hooligan looks like a skinhead because he is a skinhead, the police are apt to detect him and you know uh, arrest him for his various crimes or like eject him from from the ground or whatever. Yes. Um, but at this point. English sides are, are playing in uh, in Europe um, when they're doing European fixtures, and the story the story is that Liverpool fans discover a very poorly guarded luxury menswear store in the course of <laughs> one of these things. Oh, wow. Just just some some fucking boutique that is not really prepared. For a bunch of English guys to right. come in, break all the windows, and rob the place. Um, and so it's debatable whether this is where this started. But imperialism by way of my Armani Exchange T-shirt. Yeah, like as the seventies roll into the eighties, you get the development of what's called the casual. Uh, and this is somebody who wears like a lot of. At this time, expensive European fashion designers, your your Adidas, your Sergio Tacchini, your Stone Island, as you see here with the little fucking badge, which itself became uh, like sort of mimetic for everything from football hooligans to to far right violence to you know you name it. Um, I mean, even today, right? You, so, like Stone Island is still a luxury brand. It's kind of worked quite hard to try and shed that image, but there are definitely clubs that you could not get into wearing, uh, you know, a thousand pound Stone Island jacket because of that fucking badge on the arm. Um, and I mean, also, uh, so so the point of this, the point of this casual subculture is partly that uh, people enjoy dressing up, but it's also it deters suspicion, right? Um, the police think that if you're wearing expensive clothes, you're less likely to get in a fist fight with somebody. Not really accounting for the fact that you don't care about your expensive jacket getting scuffed if you stole it in Milan, like uh, the year before or whatever. Um, and it's interesting because you can talk about football hooliganism on the continent as a cover for acquisitive crime as a cover for robbing stores, because a lot of that happened. It was very poorly reported on at the time, that if you, if you, you know, uh, if your team is playing away and you follow them, that it's entirely plausible that you spend that day drinking, you uh, rob, rob some luxury. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 You, well, you, you rob a store, you get some jackets to take home with you, then you go to the football. 
Um, All right. I I was reading these notes earlier, and I had a thought, which was like, what what if there were like golf hooligans? And they go <laughs> go rob the Joseph A. Banks or the men's warehouse. <laughs> I don't know. What the, yeah, just a <laughs> bunch of like polo Ralph Lauren guys. Yeah, exactly. They go they go rob the uh, <laughs> they go rob the Ralph Lauren display at the Macy's at the mall. <laughs> <laughs> and it's that's not too far off from what happened. Like all of the, you look at all of these fashion brands. Uh, and like they've been so so tainted by association in a lot of ways, uh, but you look at the corporate history and it's like, oh yeah, it was founded by this Italian communist in 1950, uh, and he wanted to use like expensive nylon and and whatever. And then these guys show up and they just take it. Um, so well, that's redistribution right there. That's true. <laughs> that is true, and that, it's it's praxis, and we're obligated yes. to support it. It's true. So, praxis. <laughs> so, so, so your casual, your um, your guy wearing a lot of like European menswear is your sort of archetypical football hooligan of the nineteen eighties. So as things it, get into, is the casual like in opposition to like the guy who actually looks like a skinhead? Yeah, well, not like it, it's the same it's, guy. It's the He's same, just like. Okay. Uh, he's just kind of used it as camouflage, or his his style has changed over time. I'm just thinking, um, like, casual is like in opposition to like hardcore or something like that, or I, I don't I think know. It, I think it might be just from casual wear. Well, um, I can also do it. Yeah, because all of these are like sport brands, like your right. uh, your Adidas or whatever. Um, we have casuals versus our real gamers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, this means that we have to talk about. I overclocked my router to be closer <laughs> to God. <laughs> we have to talk about the ways in which casuals were organized, which means we have to talk about um, uh, firms, which means we have to talk about, next slide please, to work this in trains. Of course. Yay. So, as anyone who's ever taken a train in the UK will know, being on a train with football fans is hell. Yes. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> that I will never forgive Chelsea fans for existing. Perfectly reasonable. Um, you, 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 you know, football fans on trains, always drunk, always loud, uh, sprawled across six seats between four people. Uh, you know, bottles rolling down the aisle, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The thing you got to remember. About getting drunk on the train is mm -hmm. uh, guess who's not driving? <laughs> <laughs> That's me. That's right. You can't do shit to me about getting drunk I mean, on the train. I have been drinking since nine a.m. <laughs> <laughs> I have had fourteen beers. Yes, yeah. I'm it's... gonna I'm gonna piss into the six year old hat. Let's do this. <laughs> yeah, it's a party atmosphere. I think it's like it's apt to be called. Um, so this this is. Sort of a problem, and British Rail, uh, who at this time control all of the trains, as it should be, they develop a solution that only a centralised, nationalised train company could love, which is the football special. SEPTA does this too, Alice. Really? Yeah, we, yeah, we do have we had the, the Sports sport, Express. We had yeah. the Sports Express, yeah, on a Broad Street line. It uh, skips a bunch oh. of stations in South Philly. Also, the Pennsylvania used to do this. There were football specials for the Army-Navy game, yeah. They had yeah. a special huh. temporary station they built for them. There's also a lot of specials that went to horse racing tracks. That's right, Alice. How dare you? Yeah. Damn. <laughs> All right. Just fucking dragged my ass on this yeah, one. So, I, there was a special train that went direct from West Point to uh, 
South Philly, and it was um, about the only time you'd see a GG1 hauling uh, New York Central uh, passenger cars. And then hopefully dumping it into the Delaware. <laughs> <laughs> so, so your football special in the UK <laughs> originates in the 20s with steam engines, right? You just put a fucking uh, special head plate on the front of the steam engine and you move a lot of people uh, you know, to, to go see a football match. And it's sort of conceived of as a more genteel sort of like uh, leisure class outing thing at that point. Um, but we're not talking about this, we're talking about the 1970s and 80s, uh, and because of a combination of classism, fear of violence, and leftovers, your football special that ferries fans to such exotic places as Bristol or Leicester, um, that's made up of leftover rolling stock uh, with often no working toilets, uh, sometimes Sometimes no seats. Adds weight. Uh, bars over the windows occasionally. Hell yeah! Literally um, adds weight. Well, I, I was <laughs> imagining this might be like slam door cars, and you got to prevent people from like sticking their arm out the window and getting it knocked off oh, by yeah. an oncoming train. You know, adds oh, yeah. weight. <laughs> but all of this is a great way to make people live down to their reputation. Uh, if you treat football fans as dangerous, you know, well. <sighs> They're going to show you dangerous, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. But there are the advantages of this for the authorities are you kind of you kind of like corral the fans. You keep fans away from nice normal people. Um you can police those trains very heavily. You can just put a cop in every carriage. Um and most importantly, you know exactly when and where your fans will be arriving. So when they get out of the station at wherever is holding the away game, you can just corral them as you like in your own time. You know what this um, reminds me of? Hmm. Aaron Express. Oh god, yeah. Yeah, this is just Aaron Express on a larger scale. Yep. Uh for the for, hmm. the, for the folks on uh who may not know what Aaron Express is. Lucky every, you. Yeah, lucky <laughs> you. Uh, every every year in March there uh, there's an extended St. Patrick's Day tradition which is on the weekends, there's a whole bunch of crappy school buses. They go around Philly to various Irish pubs, and you can get hop on and hop off. Everyone's drunk. Everyone's 19. Um, <laughs> when I turned 21, I was like, I'm too old to go to Aaron, Aaron Express. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think the same vibe. Um, also, if you remember from our Hillsborough episode, like the sudden appearance of a lot of fans in a way that the police aren't... Uh, aren't expecting is a serious, serious problem because no one knows how to do crowd control yet. Right. Um, so it's it's part of the sort of the the match day plan for all of these things that you know uh you know X hundred fans will be at the station at this time. Um next slide please. So this is a tactic, right? And uh obviously for every tactic there's a counter tactic and if you're interested in going to the football because you want to do violence, uh, if you're interested in uh, fighting fans of other clubs, then you don't want to be surveyed by the police, you don't want the police to know when you're getting there. Um, and so what you do is you take an intercity train, or you take a, a normal service train, and you get there a bit early, or you go past and you double back, or something like that. Um, and that, that becomes such a successful way of avoiding the police that it becomes part of the identity of various uh, hooligan groups who come to be called firms. Um, so you see here you've got the, the Leeds United service crew, 
for for service trains. You have the West Ham intercity firm. Mm-hmm. I, I like this Leeds United. The, yeah, it's pretty funny. Uh, I, me too. <laughs> There's there's some aesthetic here, yeah. right? There's some there's some graphic design going on here, um, and I, I mean, the way that a, a hooligan firm acts often is quite paramilitary too. Um, for instance, that like a lot of them have sort of military affectations. Millwall's firm was called F Troop. Um, because. <laughs> mm. What they what what they actually want to do is like increasingly divorced from football, and these days they just, just want to do increasingly crime, right? divorced. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, whether that's fighting other other football hooligans, whether that's uh, yeah crimes of what we would I suppose now call racial or religious hatreds, because again, there's a lot of overlap with neo-Nazi groups still. Right. Um, whether it's theft, uh, you name it. Um, so, it, very often, the way that a football hooligan firm acts is not wearing any sort of identifying colours, arriving separately and then meeting on the terraces, getting together, having a fight during the match, and then after it trying to like isolate and ambush opposing supporters or anyone they don't like the look of. Which is also sure. when like the most people tend to get killed in relation to football hooliganism, is like someone being chased down on their own afterwards from oh, being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Cowards. Do they, yeah. Do they go after other firms or they just go after like regular people like, who like, want to see the like match? randos, yeah. It's mostly the former. So a lot of these are like by prior arrangement sort of fights. Okay. Um, they, they just agree to fight in the middle. Yeah, absolutely. Um, hey, you want to have a fight? Yeah, <laughs> sure. Yeah, that sounds yeah. good. All right, I have your talk. I have your people fight my people. And what we'll- was really <laughs> funny is when when football when football grounds when football stadia started being more policed, um, uh, firms started to arrange to fight each other away from them. And the first big prosecution in the 2000s was just all of these guys fucking texting each other. And of course the police got the texts of, are you going to come and have an organized fight with us at this location at this time? What's the problem? Why is that a crime? <laughs> and just rolled them up ahead of time. Why is um, that a crime? As long as you're not getting any innocent bystanders. That's not a crime. These are consenting adults. Yeah, exactly. They want to beat the shit out of each other and let them. Yeah, hey, you want to come fight? I got a lead pipe. <laughs> yeah, okay, I'll bring my hat. We'll square off. Yeah, oh, what's, the, shit, what's yeah. the problem? 3, 3 a.m. text, you up? I got a lead pipe. <laughs> Not that kind of lead pipe. Yeah. <laughs> so, so not. I, I mean a literal lead pipe. <laughs> So, so not not every English football club has a hooligan firm. Some mm. have several. Uh, they're always quite mutable. They're always quite deniable. Uh, notably, Liverpool, the, the 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 side that we're going to be talking about, doesn't have an organised hooligan firm at any point. Um, but it's so that you're aware that that these guys exist and are able to sort of like, uh you know, take on the whatever sort of role is expected of them, right? Or is rather not expected of them. Uh, also, one of the things that they did involved uh, putting, leaving calling cards on people who they had, uh, uh, like, beaten or stabbed or whatever. Uh, this is something that the intercity firm at West Ham pioneered, 
just little <laughs> cards stuck to you that just says, uh, you know, you have just met the Intercity firm. Or after a while, they started doing you. You have just met the Intercity firm again, which is kind of funny. Uh, I like that's that tasteless, but I like that. Both mm. these have the British Rail logo on them. Yeah, <laughs> oh, I was yeah. thinking that too. Um, so that that's your English side of, of football violence. Now we're going to talk about Italy. So, oh boy, right. go! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go off. Yeah, uh, no, I, I'm. It's I. I can't do the whole recounting of the Italian vacation partial disaster. <laughs> Um, <laughs> his brother bought some hats. This is true. Hmm. He doesn't want people to know about the hats. Oh, that we'll out, cut I that. Guess. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so Italian. Uh, then again, no one it, knows it, who my brother is, so maybe that doesn't matter. That's I true. Your brother is. I've met your brother. <laughs> so you well, can well, tell by the hair five and a half miles away. You could probably see it from space at this point. <laughs> <laughs> My brother looks like Jeremy Clarkson, but with like a more hair. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot of hair. He needs to start doing one of those. He need, you know, like a like a fro. Like he's Jarrett Allen. No, he Mm. did have a fro for a while. My parents hated it. Oh, do it! He tried like brill creaming it like flat, like a a nineteen forties fighter pilot. Dude, that's a lot of hair. I just cut around. Anyway, so Italian Italian uh, football fans, uh, uh, Italians. <laughs> I know, I know. We're talking about uh, ultras, and we're talking about tifosi. Um, tifosi just means like, like try to, try, yeah, try to blow out that tifosi. Yeah, I got yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, means like super fan. There's this fun folk like etymology. Ultra, yeah. Yeah. We're the yeah. super fans. <laughs> this is this folk etymology that Tifosi means like uh, maddened like by typhus, and I'm really I, uh, mad well, that welcome, it isn't true. Welcome to the super fans. Uh let's talk about our favorite club today, Juventus. Uh <laughs> <laughs> so 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 you may be aware that um Italy yeah, Cristiano Ronaldo didn't want you, you stupid miserable fucks. <laughs> now, do, you think, do you think in a in a, a match of football, Juventus could beat the Bears? Uh do you no. got the Bears or do you got Juventus? Justin, no. no. So, Justin Fields by 90, buddy. So, so you may be aware that Italy had kind of a different post-war settlement than, than England did. Uh, yes, the years of lead. Go and listen to our episode about yeah. the Eustica massacre with Noah for some insight about that. But the point is that the 60s, Jesus. the 70s, the 80s in Italy bless you, yeah. are a time of Political violence, sort of deep state violence, very deniable violence, and so uh, a lot of a lot of Italian ultras uh, started in the sixties or seventies as or mimicking paramilitary groups. Um, you know, you have your your commandos or your guerrillas, um, or the guys that we're going to be talking about shortly, Roma's fedayeen. Um, it sounds like fedayin some Alfredo. kind of uh, Islamic terrorist group. Oh, I mean, they took the name off of them. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Okay, that makes sense, yeah. They're just like, yeah, we're doing Islamic Jihad, but for AS Roma. Um, oh, that's pretty ugh. funny. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Nothing about AS Roma is funny. The Italians don't even deserve to have a soccer league. <laughs> so, um, ultras, ultras are a lot similar to, uh, to English football hooligans in some ways, but there are differences. Um, in particular, where football hooligans are kind of like, less about the football and less to do with the ground and getting further away from it, 
your your ultras have more emphasis on physical control of their stadiums, on uh, you know where tickets are you know where tickets are distributed to, where the choreography happens, uh, pyrotechnics as you see here. Oh, fun. Uh, chant. I read this one interview with the Roma ultra. Where they ask him what, what, what would happen if someone started a chant that hadn't been like pre-approved by the lads, and he's like, "Oh yeah, that'd be a, that'd be a very serious matter for us." This is like a, um, this is this is like a mummer brigade. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, um, yes, this is sort of like very very tight control of of ceasing and access particularly in um in in the top flight of italian football um also by reputation more likely to stab you than just beat you um in particular rome has a sort of a reputation as like stab city for football violence um and the british thought oh we'll have that yeah absolutely so um, like, if, it, if if you are just like a normal fan and you want to go to a match do you have to like buy tickets through you might not you might not have to and if you do you might not do it knowingly like if you're buying them from a ticket town someone who resells tickets okay right. that that may well be controlled by ultras but you don't necessarily like have to pay too much attention to that okay um so ultras, some of them have had some far left associations. Uh, there are a handful of sides, like if you want to talk about La Coruña in Spain or Livorno in Italy. Uh, but by and large, these are again phenomena of the far right, um, and you get some weird politics out of this too. Um, some very strange sort of European vibes where you have two groups of avowed fascists calling each other Jews. Right, um, thanks guys, you fucking dicks. Like, Lazio, whose ultras love doing Nazi salutes, like yeah, more Lazio's, than anyone. Lazio shouldn't even be a team. Yeah. Um, they, some of their ultras did a photoshop of Anne Frank in a Roma shirt, for instance. Oh, and, and Roma ultras are not any less fascist. And so this went back and forth of them calling each other like secret Jews yeah. for years. Why does this country continue to exist? <laughs> because it wasn't Napole bombed Napoleon, hard enough Napoleon in North Africa. Did nothing wrong. <laughs> uh, Ethiopia will have its revenge. Mm. Aren't they like trying to start like a left ultra firm in Seattle for their team? I, 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 I mm, keep yeah, they trouble for the three years. But then, that, but then they're like MLS is like trying to shut that down. That's the other thing. Yeah, yeah, they don't want us to have fun. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Also, lot, lots of uh, lots of sort of more political, a lot of lot of banners, a lot of banners Celtic. about <laughs> yeah, yeah, lots of neo-Nazi banners, which would be not Celtic. At, That's not Celtic. At, at, at this time, kind of unheard of in English football. Um, it's not that English football was less racist. It's just they, that they just the, hadn't gotten around to being literate yet. Yeah, pretty much the way the means of expression differ. Um, I feel like if in the United States, like or like here in Philly, if they tried to start an ultra firm for like the uh, union, it would be far right, which would be ironic because it's the union. It's just Chester County. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one thing I will say is that this is sort of the um, this is the cultural success, right? Like, yeah. as much as people say football hooliganism, and you think English person, if you ask pretty much any European what they call this type of guy. In their language, it's an ultra. 
Um, all of the sort of like relationships between them, between between different nations, between different clubs, are between this type of guy. Like in some ways, English football hooliganism is a bit aberrant in this way. Um, but so with that background, we can get into we can get into our story. Forty eight minutes in. Yes, <laughs> thank you. I was told this was going to be a quick one. Now I have to order food. I'll try. <laughs> I w- I'll speed this up a little bit. Hi, it's Justin. Uh, so this is a commercial for the podcast that you're already listening to. Uh, people are annoyed by these, so let me get to the point. We have this thing called Patreon, right? The deal is you give us two bucks a month, and we give you an extra episode once a month. Uh, sometimes it's a little inconsistent, but, you know, it's two bucks. You get what you pay for. Um, it also gets you our full back catalog of bonus episodes, so you can learn about exciting topics like guns, pickup trucks, or pickup trucks with guns on them. The money we raise through Patreon goes to making sure that the only ad you hear on this podcast is this one. Anyway, that's something to consider if you have two bucks to spare each month. Uh, join at patreon.com forward slash WTYPpod. Do it if you want. Or don't. It's your decision, and we respect that. Back to the show. Um, so, within this sort of febrile atmosphere, we have the European Cup Final of 1984 in Rome. It is Liverpool versus AS Roma. Um, and Liverpool, who are the underdogs, Win in a hostile atmosphere, right. which is tense. Uh, they win when no one's expecting them to, which is even more tense. And they win on penalties, which is way more tense. Hell yeah! And it's it's Don't really say hell yeah. Like penalties are a good way to end a game. You fucking poser. Okay, okay. Listen, sometimes <laughs> penalties are good, and that's very tense. They have to until somebody dies. That's that's when they favor you. Came, came yes. damn close to a very literal shootout in this. Uh, it's also really funny because Liverpool, not expecting to win, all of their squad have been drinking for a week at this point in the, tu- <laughs> yeah. in the tunnel on the way to come out. They're listening to Chris Ray's I Don't Know What Love Is in a, on a boombox. <laughs> AS Soccer's Roma. Great. Great, <laughs> yeah. AS Roma have been training in the fucking Dolomites halfway up a mountain. Uh, like, Super, super serious about this whole thing, and they lose. Um, this is this is such a blow that their captain shoots himself dead on the on the ten oh. year anniversary of this. Um, but on the streets afterwards, it's like the fucking warriors. Um, Liverpool away supporters have this fucking. Anabasis back to the train station, being hunted through the streets with knives and bars. <laughs> um, a couple of them get stabbed. I don't think anyone dies. Um, but this does get English football firms wanting revenge. And so everyone sort of knows that there will be consequential violence for this the next time an English and an Italian side play each other. The maximum amount of time that is is gonna be like whenever another Italian team plays, you know, gets to the European Cup final, which, as it turns out, next slide, please, is the next year. 
Oh my god. Yeah. Liverpool defend their title against uh, the Turin side Juventus, who, again, Juve fans fucking hate Roma fans domestically, but it just doesn't matter, right? Because there's this fucking second shadow match within the match that is Italian ultras versus English casuals. But meanwhile, the, the Liverpool team has discovered this sort of Balmer peak where they, uh, <laughs> where they, they, they have incredible soccer skill a after a certain number of drinks. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I mean, this is the thing. This is going to be the ro the most hotly disputed part of this. So yell at me in the comments, right? Um, but it, it remains from 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 that day to this very hotly disputed. To what extent non Liverpool football hooligans were in attendance on the Liverpool side at Heisel at the eighty five. Uh, European Cup final. Um, I've I've heard I've seen interviews with uh, firms from other clubs who were explicitly invited. I think also some probably came on their own because they knew there would be fighting and that appealed to them. Right, it makes sense um, they'd show up. It, it you know, and it proves a point. Also, it's sort of revenge, but sure, also some of this, yeah. yeah. But also, some of this is just organic from Liverpool supporters, uh, and I think some of this narrative of outside agitators, of like National Front guys, of of um, you know other firms, is sort of uh, exculpatory, and it's like self exculpatory on Liverpool's part. Uh, to be like, yeah, no, it actually wasn't us. It was, you know, it was, it was these other guys. Um, so, you know, relitigate that in the comments. Um, Don't relitigate shit in the comments. Shut <laughs> up. <laughs> <laughs> but so, so in '84, the problem was that they held the cup final at uh, one of the two sides' home cities instead of at a neutral location, and that led to the violence in Rome. So, okay, you got to have a neutral location. Uh, what's more neutral than Belgium? <laughs> Switzerland. We, yeah. This reminds me of a quote from uh, that great history book, 1066 and all that. Uh, world, uh, the Great War was a war between Germany and America and was thus fought in Belgium. <laughs> <laughs> and there, are, there are serious questions about why, uh, why UEFA holds this in, in Belgium. Like, there are bigger, more professional stadiums that that could have, you know, that could have accommodated this game. Um, why they picked Heisel Stadium uh, is is a question that people are still asking today. Given that it's UEFA, it's probably to do with bribes. Yeah, um, it's soccer, so yeah. it's bribes. Yeah, there was probably some profiteering on the side, but you know, by this point, who can say? Uh, next slide, please. And we see we see our our, our honkball stadion here. This thing looks um, like shit. Yeah, yeah, it's Belgian. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it, it, this is this is Heisel. Um, it was built in the 1920s, um, which means at this point it is 55 years old. It looks like it's been modernized to be worse. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, it's. I, I think it used to have a front building that they would. Yeah. Uh, mm. That they demolished, but. Um, yeah, at this point, it's literally falling apart, like in a masonry sense. Um, like, like in a, like we're talking like 80s Fenway. 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, UEFA does Old a pre- Boston guard, baby. <laughs> UEFA does a pre-match safety inspection, um, and that we don't know what that what that consisted of. We do know that it lasted thirty minutes, start to finish. Um, so a, a guy looked at this, taking some bribes, yes, smoking a cigarette. A guy looked at this and then looked at some envelopes and then looked at this again That's and decided fine. it was fine. I was about to say, I, I you know, I, I have done structural inspections, you know, uh, wide ranging inspections of building. And I would say in 30 minutes, I could do like one small pizza slice of this building here. <laughs> <laughs> Not, neither Juventus nor Liverpool wants to play here. Um, this is this is an, a classic of our genre. This is one of those disasters where there's this long, long lead-in where everybody looks at it and goes, "Oh, that's going to be Ooh, bad. We, bad should, idea, we shouldn't bad do idea. that." Shouldn't yeah, do that, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I I want to talk about how bad the masonry is when fans get there without tickets, uh, which is still a thing you could do. There's a decent chance you'll get in. Um, yeah. uh, some of them are literally able to get in by kicking holes in the wall. Ah, that's oh. pretty cool. Uh, when you do Dear. get in, you're sta- it's all standing, and you're standing on a concrete terrace which has the rebar exposed and big chunks of concrete just lying loose on the floor. Um, Where's Sean from Antifada? Get in there, bud. <laughs> I used to have a bad habit of just picking loose bricks out of buildings anytime I you was walking You still do around. that. Yeah, actually, I do still do that. <laughs> yeah, and you could have come away with a cement mixer full Bro, of you loose cement. You half the stadium by the time yeah. you yeah, were Yeah, I have half the stadium like, in my pocket. Like <laughs> also, uh, beneath beneath a little hut at the back of the North Terrace, there were dozens of meter long lengths of rigid plastic pipe, just easily accessible, um, just for anyone who was poking around. Um, and most importantly, different sections are separated by thin chain link fences, which will become important as I show you. Next slide, please. The most horrifying diagram I've seen on this podcast in a minute. <laughs> oh, I don't like that. So, would you believe that both teams were opposed to this seating arrangement? That um, would make sense. So, th- this idea of separating fans by which club they support is something that, like, Italian football, very keen on, English football, very keen on, totally yeah. unknown in Belgium. In Belgium, you just go to the football, you have a nice time. Right. Uh, you don't even worry about it. You have a waffle or whatever. Um, and so the Belgian authorities don't really get the idea of separating fans. The original idea is you put the Liverpool fans at one end, you put the Juventus fans at the other end, you fill in the space with neutrals, um, and then you know that way no one can fight each other. Um, but correct me no, if we're I'm so wrong. End of episode. Have Are a good these- one, everybody. <laughs> So these guys at the end, this is all standing area, and then like in the middle, these are seats, right? I think this might actually be all standing. Oh, I think my it might God. be all terraced. Wow. Um, but the problem is because Liverpool are playing slightly further away. Uh, there's not as many Liverpool fans as there are Juventus fans, and they don't want to just have an empty section. So section Z here is neutral, just anyone can turn up and get a ticket. Um, and there are a decent number of Italian expats uh, and people of Italian descent who live in Belgium, who get to see a really, really good Italian football side play a really good English side, 
for not very much money uh, and for like very little traveling time. So a bunch of them do. A bunch of Italian Juventus supporters in Belgium just show up and end up in Section Z. Next to. Were they like told, they're like, hey, you're going to be next to the Liverpool supporters? Fuck no. Of course not. No one was was told anything. Oh my Um, God. So about that fence. Next slide, please. Um, so, oh Liv- boy! So the Liverpool fans have been drinking heavily. Hats. Oh that, yeah, that's the bucket not, hats, that's not chain the Kangol. Chain links made of metal. That looks like it's some like some kind of like stamped plastic not even shit. I've, yeah, I've heard I've heard it described as tennis netting. <laughs> um, so the Liverpool fans have been drinking all day, by and large, and then they go to the match. And about an hour before the match starts, the fighting does. Um, Foolish to talk about provocation or who started it, but very quickly you see like stones, loose bits of concrete, uh, bottles, coins, empty cans thrown over this fence between section X and section Z. Um, and this is, we're looking here at section Z, the mixed section, and you can see the sort of like mix of, uh, mix of supporters. You can see a Liverpool flag. Uh, you can see some Juventus, Juventus hats. Uh, yeah. There's one guy, if you if you see the red Kangol about halfway up on the far right, wearing a Roma hat. Um, so you, you have a real mix in there. Um, and you may also notice, if you count them up, five Belgian cops in riot gear, plus the guy in the hat. Um, for a long time, these were the only cops on this fence, on this boundary. Um, there had been another eight stationed up there, but they were outside the ground investigating a theft of 600 francs, or about 22 euros, from a cash box at a hot dog stand. <laughs> I'm not sure why this needed eight cops in riot gear uh, to solve this sort of crime of the century, they but that's where they, they went. They, didn't, they knew it was coming, and they didn't want to be there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and so as you approach kickoff, uh, fans from the Liverpool section, Section X, uh, mount this assault on Section Z. They overwhelm the cops. They tear down this fence. We're talking about maybe two hundred people, um, which is a lot within the context of how many people would you like to fight at once. Right. Uh, next slide, please. And this starts. Uh, Another crowd control event. Yes. Um, if if you are not interested in fighting a shitload of drunk Englishmen, you have to leave the situation. You have to do the share zone thing. You have to hit the bricks. Yes. Right. Um, yes. You might not even get a choice. You might just be getting forced back by the crowd anyway. Um, but in that case, you're getting forced back towards the walls of the stadium. There's uh, there's two walls. There's the outer wall. And then there's the wall that, if you go back to the diagram, um, right. you it, it's the the wall between section Z and the long sort of like, um, long, yeah, that one. Um, yes. yes. So th- those two walls, which are like uh, tall concrete walls, um, the shitty crumbling concrete walls, which are now yeah. having an entire section of fans pushing against them. So, 
some people die of crush injuries at this point, and then the fucking war collapses. Yes. Oh, fuck. Um, and again, like crowd movements, right? This isn't anyone's fault aside from the, you know, the English people, but um, like what happens is that the wall collapses on top of people and then the crowd goes over the wall. Mm -hmm. uh, so there are people who are like trapped under the wall who have people climb over them. Um, Jesus. If you, if you look at the, um, the concrete wall here, you can see the, uh, the stanchions on it. Yeah, you see uh, Those are... Yeah. Your buttresses here are clearly not designed to uh, withstand a force from this side. Um, I mean, overall, I imagine a stadium of this sort of this age was not built with the idea of hooliganism in mind. No. Uh, honestly, no. like... Having a it's built for the finest, yeah. the finest sports of the 1920s, which are hitting each other with clubs or whatever. Yeah. Um, Although, you know, if it didn't give way, it might have had more crush deaths than uh, concrete wall falling on people deaths. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the, uh, the stanchions on this are supposedly built, like, on the wrong side. Mm -hmm. um, and, I mean, this is, this is where most of your deaths happen. Uh, people die from being pushed against the wall, people die from being crushed by the wall, uh, and the fighting is still happening, so you're not fucking doing first aid, right? Um, the, police is, the police radios don't work, so oh, they, can't, they can't Idea. call reinforcements. There is one doctor and something like 150 Red Cross volunteers who are also immediately overwhelmed. Um, and so, 39 people die, something like 400 injured, um, the youngest is like 11 years old. Jesus. Um, there's this, uh, I found this line from uh, an Italian, Italian fan, he's a doctor actually, uh, he says, um, I saw my son lying on the terrace and I put my ear to his chest and listened. I thought I could hear a pulse but I realised it was my own heart. Um, he was dead, and a television crew was filming me, and later I saw footage of myself finding my dead son. Because all of this went out live. Um, right. And, you know, uh, accidentally traumatizing an entire generation of people watching it. Not to mention the commentators. Um, the Juventus fans, who are at the other end of the stadium, can see what's happening. They riot themselves, break out of their stand, try and run down the pitch. Um, Probably for better rather than for worse, the police are able to like stop them. I uh, yeah, um, probably would have made it a lot worse. Right. Yes. Um, but speaking of making it a lot worse, next slide, please. What they do after this is they play the fucking football match. <laughs> Why? Don't do that. Of course. Because the Belgian because the Belgian cops are afraid that if they don't, the violence will be worse. Sure. Which okay. I'm not sure. I genuinely yeah, I don't, don't know. I, I don't. Uh, yeah. I, I yeah. think the I think the fear is that if you just tell everybody to go home, then you have like a running battle in the streets rather than uh, just contained within the stadium. But um, all the players know what's happened, and uh, Juventus in particular explicitly request not to play the match, but UEFA ignore them. Um, Incidentally, one of the one of the Liverpool players he uh, he dislocates his shoulder like a couple of minutes in. They have to get him to the hospital in secret, uh, lock his hospital room with an armed guard, 
and cover up his uniform when he's leaving the hospital. Um, because that that you know it's it's like fucking nearest hospital. That's where uh, a, a shit ton of uh, of victims of the 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 collapse and the crush injuries are. Juve win the match in a sort of obviously fixed way. It doesn't matter. Um, the Liverpool players get on their bus with the police escort. It drives them directly from their hotel to the plane, like onto the tarmac, so they don't have to go through the terminal. It's very much like, <laughs> yeah. you, you know, leave town sort of you thing. Get out of here. Just, <laughs> yeah. Just get out. <laughs> just get out of here. Yeah. Uh, w- w- I have this quote from, from an Italian fan. He says, uh, The match passed us by as though we were in a trance or as if we had been drugged. Um, all of the players, like who are still alive, as far as I know, uh, all still traumatized by it. Um, Understandable. The, yeah. the 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 captain of Liverpool this time, he says, um, uh, like he testified uh, to the to the inquest about Hillsborough. Never any inquest for this. Um, like he's never like been asked to speak about it to anyone. Um, you just sort of like deal with it. Um, and so, and so we're left with the aftermath. Next slide, please. Um, and I guess we'll talk about the the football aftermath first, and then the sort yeah. of aftermath in terms of hooliganism. Um, so every um, every investigation blames this entirely and solely on the Liverpool fans, um, which is fair enough, right? Within reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, if had had they not like. Gone over that barrier and attacked uh, the other fans. None of this would have happened. Yes, it would have been unsafe and shitty. But like, you probably would have gotten away with it. Um, and so, uh, thirty-four Liverpool fans get arrested, uh, extradited for manslaughter. Fourteen of them get convicted. Uh, in all, I think only seven of them go to prison, and it's for like three years. Um, the head of the Belgian Football Association gets a suspended sentence uh, for fucking up the ticketing, so do a couple of Belgian cops. Which, I will say, is more institutional consequences than happened for Hillsborough. Um, like, uh, South Yorkshire Police and the FA fought that for decades, mm. rather than like letting David Duckenfield or whoever get like one year suspended sentence. Yeah. Which, yeah, it, right. instead of even doing that, there was the sort of like of refusal course. to accept any kind of consequences. The Belgians don't do that. They, they like, you know, sort of quarantine that. But um, th- there's this huge, huge cultural shock in terms of um, uh, European football and what people think it is. Like um, the, the French sporting newspaper, L'Equipe, their headline is uh, if this is football, then let it die. Um, and th- there's this there's this incredible sort of uh, Guardian editorial in England that says, "Quarantine our sad, sick game. Uh, we are the root of the contagion, the home of the virus, and we must act accordingly." Mm-hmm. Um, so sounds about right. Yeah. So everyone everyone expects Liverpool to get banned from competing in Europe, uh, and I think no one would have been surprised by that. But enter into the breach one Margaret Thatcher. Uh, who attempts to finesse this a little bit? I'm a finesse. I'm a finesse. <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> and her way of finessing it is uh, to ask the FA, why don't you just uh, you know voluntarily pull 
every England, every every English club out of Europe for a couple of years and hope that that's enough to make it go away. Sure. Uh, so the FA try this on 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 UEFA, the uh, the European Football Association Union, uh, and they go, "Huh, all English sides out of Europe. That's an interesting idea. Why don't we just do that?" Um, yeah, Brits and- out. <laughs> yes, <laughs> truly, Brits out. Every every English club is banned from playing in Europe indefinitely, um, and in- indefinitely turns out to be five years, six for Liverpool. But in in sporting terms, this has this incredibly serious effect. Um, in particular, Liverpool, who have just uh, you know had won the European Cup the previous year, would otherwise have won it this year, probably. Uh, have this sort of incredible team or an incredible form that is then squandered uh, entirely domestically over the next six years. Um, if you want to... like, You can get really into the statistical consequences of this. Um, but the main thing is that like, if you are a young footballer and you want to play in Europe, you do not play in England. You go and play anywhere else. Um, and so it's this 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 draw of talent away from uh, away from top flight English football uh, in a way that wouldn't change until the advent of the Premier League. I gotta, uh, I gotta next... say this, this this image here you can sort of see some of the forces that were involved in this incident, right? Oh yeah, these uh, you like know, you can see these. Yeah. You've got these. Um, you got bars for people to sort of lean on, right? In these standing mm-hmm. yeah. areas on these uh, stadiums. This may be unfamiliar to some of our American viewers. Uh, you know, the soccer stadiums, there's a lot of standing. You have bars you can well, not lean now, on. but uh, yes. Well, yeah. I'll tell you what, there's, um, I mean, you got safe standing now, which is like a whole mm-hmm. different thing. And the, the DC United Stadium has safe standing, actually. That's the only time I've seen it. Um, I was not there for DC United. I was there for the uh, Washington Defenders XFL yeah. game. <laughs> yeah, so was Liam. Um, <laughs> uh, but you can see these, uh, you know, these. this is concrete, and it's got yep. some kind of steel bar across. It's concrete again. I would assume this is reinforced concrete. Uh, you can see down here, it's been knocked over. It's been knocked over over here. It's been knocked over over here. You can see the rebar poking out the back. Like, there was some... People got aggressive, like my God. Oh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. You know, and it's hard to like knock over reinforced concrete, even if it's fifty-five years old. Um, you know, so it, it, people are getting really, really crushed in there. You know, this is not a this. You know, these these it, crowd control like produces or, or or crowding or crushing incidents. They, they there's a lot of forces involved, and that's why they're so dangerous. And you hear. You hear these, it doesn't necessarily look that dangerous from the outside, and then you, uh... Yeah, and you, then you start pulling bodies out of it. Yeah, yeah. and then you got, like, you got, like, 50 PSI worth of people pressing on your body and turning you into, like, a sort of Chunky a, marinara. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah. No, thank you. Mm. Yeah. Oh, next slide, please. Um, so... <sighs> We got to talk about the sort of the aftermath for football hooliganism. Um, th- this this really sort of inflicted a, a psychic wound on on both sides, um, and in Liverpool in particular, it created this this incredible sense of shame uh, and guilt. Um, I, the fact is, this could have been 
any English side. Like Liverpool was certainly not uniquely violent. Um, it was sort of a combination of the violence that was inherent to all English football at that point, and the choice of venue and the ticketing conspiring. Uh, and it was just sort of like dumb luck that it was them. But um, in particular, like Liverpool supporters at that time thought of themselves as uh, less violent, as you know, sort of not engaged in football hooliganism to the extent that other clubs were. Um, and that was something that like really had sort of like grave repercussions in terms of Liverpool's self-image. And it's something that would like ultimately it's a it's a cloud that would uh, would hang until Hillsborough at least. Um, but so in any case, Liverpool, along with every other English side, is banned in order to ostensibly address football hooliganism in the English game. Um, did that work? Of course it didn't. Um, the Thatcher government's best idea to counter football hooliganism of the time was something called Goalies Against Hoolies. What? Where Jesus Christ, this woman was dumb. <laughs> where and and this is a quote: "The more articulate goalkeepers, oh come on, <laughs> would condemn violence because they were the ones like first in line for it because it was easiest to throw shit at them from the stands." Um, that sounds really dumb for everyone involved. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. You know. Thankfully, this never saw the light of day. Uh, but. Football hooliganism in England only really started to decline after Hillsborough, and for like a very complex set of reasons. But the reason why Hillsborough happened, in part, is because Heisel made people terrified of the idea of uh, football fans not being in contained pens. If you don't keep them within these sort of very secure areas, they're just going to rampage out and attack each right. other, uh, and and the same thing is going to happen again. And so that's how you get to. The pens at Hillsborough, um, but one thing I will say is, uh, compared to this, right, the response that Juventus had was very, very strange because for a long time Juventus officially didn't mention this at all. Uh, there was like no official commemoration of this whatsoever. Um, there was this sort of sense of shame, uh, and I'm not quite sure I understand why or how that happened. Um, but and so, while English football did ultimately have this kind of reckoning with hooliganism to an extent, um, Italian football never really did. Um, as late as 2009, Fabio Capello was talking about Serie A uh, being 100% controlled by the ultras. Um, and and so you end up with this sort of like one-sided attempt at reconciliation for a long time where the next time Liverpool play Juventus which is in 2005 uh you can see here it's quite this uh, quite a sort of powerful gesture where uh, Liverpool fans spell out amicizia which is uh, friendship and some Juventus fans applaud and some of them turn their backs on them uh some of them have signs calling English fans animals uh, saying that Hillsborough is God's punishment. Um, <laughs> that seems a bit extreme. There's, 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 there's one that says, um, uh, it's easy to speak and difficult to pardon. Um, which fucking fair enough, yeah. I guess. 
Like, I, I'm not going to tell you that you you are obligated to to forgive a football club. Uh, but I, one thing I will say is that Juventus has never shaken off their ultras completely. Um, and you know, to this day, in Italian uh, top flight matches, you will still see you know stabbings in in connection with them, uh, and you'll still see violence that. I won't say it never happens in England, but uh, it is often more sort of like concealed. So maybe I would suggest a very cynical corporate apology delivered 20 years late is better than nothing. Um, and it's also, it's also an indictment on the culture of football at the time. And I, I have this quote here from, uh, from Nick Hornby's Fever, uh, fever Pitch. Um, the kid stuff that proved murderous in Brussels belonged firmly and clearly on a continuum of apparently harmless but obviously threatening acts. Violent chants, wanker signs, the whole petty hard act works. In which a very large majority of fa- in which a very large minority of fans had been indulging for nearly twenty years. In short, Heisel was part of an organic part of a culture that many of us, myself included, had contributed towards. Let's, so, uh, I will say, mm. you know, there there is a huge institutional failing here outside of hooliganism, which is just that they wanted to sell more tickets, so they decided let's throw the. Uh, Let's have this general section next to the uh, next to the, the hooligan section. Ultras, yeah. You know, and this is yeah. some people were like marching zombie-like to this match, knowing it was a terrible idea the whole time. But like institutional momentum just brought them to the point where like, all right, let's do this stupid thing, and then the stupid thing resulted in the obvious outcome. I I don't know that you can. I mean. Obviously, I, I guess, you know, football hooligan cult, cult, uh, culture is bad, but like not being able to handle it in a proactive fashion when you knew how to handle it before, just refusing to do right. that. It's just yeah. incredible that they that they made the that decision in the first place. Right. Yeah. Um, it, Especially having having a year after the 84 final. Knowing yeah. that, like, some form of violence was going to happen, I probably want to avoid having these people next to each other. Ah, uh, let's not do that. Yeah. Um. So I put this one firmly on the Belgians. Um. <laughs> yeah. It's it's <laughs> it's on the Belgians. It's on UEFA. It's yeah. on Liverpool question mark brackets national front brackets ultras brackets. Yeah. No, I don't know. Yeah. Uh. All I can say is it has this sort of like it smacks of inevitability, like you say. Yeah, yeah, um, you're absolutely right. Uh, and not inevitability. I would argue the opposite of inevitability. You could have avoided. Yeah, this was very evitable. Oh um, yeah, you could have evaded this. No problem. And maybe no not, one did but that. Right, and, but you chose you know, not to. Mm, right. Both the teams were against the idea. You know, they should have just said, "All right, listen, we're not going to yeah. play this match." If you have the seating arrangement, we are, um, but you get one yeah. fan each. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We have to sacrifice one fan each. We put one in the op- opposing section. They get well, beaten now, to death. Now, <laughs> <laughs> so now, now, if you go to Juventus, uh, Juventus Stadium, also Anfield, you you can see a very small plaque or like a garden of memory, uh, and you know the the. <laughs> I don't know. It f- it feels inadequate, but what would feel adequate? For sure. Right. Um, exactly. 
And that's that that's that's what I had on uh the, the High School Stadium disaster. What did we learn? Don't go to Belgium. Don't go to Belgium. Don't never listen to UEFA. They're all uh corrupt and very stupid. If 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 you see something that's going to result in mass violence and you have the opportunity to prevent it, you should probably do that. Also, rather than leave. be like, this is a bad idea, this is a bad idea, right, this is a bad do idea, it anyway. we're going to do it anyway. Yeah, for sure. Well, we have a segment on this podcast called Safety Third. Safety Third. Shake hands for danger. Uh, this is uh, sent in by a viewer only, only uh, earlier today. Yes. So. Hello. Hello. Yeah. Oh, oh, would you like to read it? Well, yeah, it's my job. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, I don't mean wow. to take your job away from you. Because I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I did the note, so I was like, ah, oh, oh, for fuck's sake. God, no, you're you're putting me out of a job, Liam. I, Alice, whoever you are. <laughs> Alice, <laughs> fuck you, dude. <laughs> my food is here, so yeah. I'll be right back. Oh, Go ahead God. without me. All right. Yay, Liam. Yay, Liam. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who my co-hosts are. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Alice, Roz, Liam, or substitute for Liam and potential guest. Yeah, that's guest. me again. Yes. Apparently. <laughs> yeah, Depu I'm, I've gotten used to deputizing for him, yeah. <laughs> this safety third comes from way back in my family archives, from my great-great-grandfather who was a lighthouse keeper in late 19th century Ireland. I saw the documentary, The, uh, the Lighthouse, about him. Is that what it's called? I hope that joke lands. The fucking one with um, uh, Robert Pattinson. I don't know that one. Uh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It might be funny for the viewers. My yeah. uh my, my great great grandfather, Robert Pattinson. Ah uh, yes. Uh he was a he was a vampire of some sort. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, just like Morbius. That's yeah. right. Except he's dead, not the living vampire. Yeah, the dead the, vampire. The dead vampire, yes. <laughs> no longer Morbin. <laughs> Morb himself it's... right out of living. <laughs> It's so funny that uh, the, that people managed to convince them to re-release that movie and have it flop a second time. Pretty funny. I, that's it, very it's funny. A very funny thing. Uh, I still don't know what Morbius is. Other than he's like a vampire guy. Is he like a comic book guy? I think he's a comic book guy, uh, but he's 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 like. Uh, is he even a guy? Yeah, he's a, yeah, he's a guy. Oh, okay. Morbius, Doctor Michael <laughs> Morbius. He has like he's a blood a condition guy, yeah. that uh -huh. like. Makes him like a vampire, but he's the living vampire because he's not undead. He's just a guy. Well, just His catchphrase, of course, is "It's Morbin time." Yeah. That's right. That's right. I, uh, Stand back, everybody! I'm about to morb. He's uh, all right. Um, my family, right up to the 1950s when they moved to England, were always rather nautical, with basically every generation from about 1830 to 1950 having at least two lightkeepers in it being assigned to different lights across the coast of Ireland. This story, awesome. this story comes from a lighthouse called the Calf Rock, down in County Cork. I'm glad to have found the diary that my great-great-grandfather wrote during this incident, and for several years before and after, as well as other family stories and newspaper clippings. The main character of our story, let's call him Tom for no particular reason, had been assigned, I'm still picturing Robert uh, Pattinson. Yeah. Had been assigned to the Calf Rock alongside six other assistant keepers in 1880. 
and he was assigned as the senior lightkeeper. I thought you just had like two guys in a lighthouse. Having like uh, eight of them, uh, uh, seven of them rather. That's I. I that's I, a lot of dudes. Yeah, it's a different movie if you have seven guys. Well, <laughs> I, I mean, you gotta wonder. Okay, what? How is this light powered? It's eighteen eighty. Is it's not electric, right? It's probably not electric. Um, I'm not. I'm not a lighthouse expert, so maybe it was Shit electric. Load of- Shitload yeah. of consignments of whale oil or something. Uh, yeah, like, I don't know. I don't know. You got whale oil. Maybe you got like. Uh, maybe it's a. It could be. It could be natural gas. Um, it could be. It might just be a big fire. Who knows? I. I. I, have, mm. I don't know how lighthouses work. Uh, I'm not a lighthouse guy. Someone. Someone who's a lighthouse guy. Uh, sound off in the comments. Yeah. So had been assigned to the Calf Rock alongside six other assistant keepers in 1880, and he was assigned as the senior light keeper. You know, also probably the, um, the big Fresnel lens that magnifies uh-huh, the light, yeah. that's probably like steam-powered or something. Wow. Yeah, I mean, probably okay. has like a, that's probably a whole, whole thing to maintain. Um, yeah, I wonder how these lighthouses work. Um, research project. Um, mm. so one Could of them, be a whole episode yeah. in itself, the lighthouse, the lighthouse. Yeah. One of them was to always stay ashore known as the shore keeper. Yeah. He works remotely. He like dials into the Zencaster. It's fine. Duty on the light at night included sitting at the top of the lighthouse or at the bottom in shifts, making sure that the light didn't go out, generally sitting around, not doing very much to make sure that the ships sailing by didn't get wrecked on the shore. Um, safety back then was rather rudimentary, especially since they were the safety people for the ships. And during a period of particularly bad weather, the incident, which is the subject of today's story, occurred. Hmm. As is most of the weather in Munster, particularly outlying islands like the Calf Rock, Atlantic storms were and still are frequent. And there yeah, been, it looks up. Yeah, and there had been terrible weather for more than a week leading up to one fateful night when Tom, our protagonist, found himself on duty. Duty has a capital D, so it's important. Yeah, Um, it's serious. It was a particularly stormy night, and during a few minutes when he went downstairs, the entire top half of the lighthouse was almost completely blown off. Jesus. Seen here in the picture. I don't know what he said after this, uh, but we can pretty sure that it was some kind of Irish swearing. And uh, fortunately, <laughs> no one else was in the top half of the lighthouse at the time that just blew off. They managed. Is that brick too? Did it just seriously just take the top half off of that? It does appear to be a brick lighthouse. Yeah, this, this is like with not, the lens and everything in it. Yeah, oh. this is like a heavy duty, uh, heavy duty installation that got knocked over. Yeah. Um. They then managed to sneak into their living quarters on the rock, shown at two on the picture. I did Um, not get the picture. I have simply improvised. uh, Without getting blown into the Atlantic and uh, turned into salty marinara for some sharks. Um, The day afterwards, the residents of the nearest island, called uh, Dursey, would have been for a surprise, as, as would the family of the Keepers, 
who lived in the lightkeeper's cottages near the shore when they saw that the top had blown off. And for three days, my... Yeah, you don't want to see that. You don't want to see that. And for three days, my great-great-grandfather Tom, as well as his crew of five other assistant keepers, was officially regarded as lost and presumed dead. That's that's rude. Yeah. (laughs) You you don't... (laughs) You don't want to, like, go and check, maybe? Hmm. It was only once someone saw them dashing across the rock, which for scale is only about 30 to 60 meter wide or 100 to 200 feet for the American freedom havers. That's right. We got the freedom here. Um, Mm -hmm. That an urgent rescue operation was mounted. So, I was about to say, I mean, I don't know. I mean, as long as no one was on the top of this thing, you figure you're probably pretty fine down here yeah your living quarters is like built into the rock which has probably been there for like i don't know a hundred thousand two hundred thousand years you have to wonder how much anybody on shore liked these guys that they see that and they're like yep the dead Uh, yep uh yep probably Probably no longer among fine yeah yeah don't have to investigate that at all Mm mm-hmm the royal navy gunmoats hms amelia an HMS Seahorse came over from the nearby castle town Bearhaven in Bantry Bay, which is at that time a Royal Navy base, and both made attempts in the four days following the disaster to rescue them, and both failed, uh, effectively leaving them to die. <laughs> Couldn't get close enough. The weather like, was too bad, apparently. Yeah. Re- rescue failed. You're on your own. Bye. Yeah. Uh, good luck. <laughs> it was only they shoot you a fucking like yeah. signal flare that just says, uh, oh, we tried. It was only after 12 days of the Navy having left them to survive on the rock amid increasingly bad storms that a group of seven locals, led by the shorekeeper and a guy named Captain Michael O'Shea, uh, went out to go grab them, right? The shorekeeper and these six other guys were fishermen. They rode out in the maelstrom until they eventually reached the rock. It took several hours of awkward moving around the rock to eventually get all six guys in the boat, and they rode them safely back to shore. <laughs> Royal Navy BTFO. Yeah. <laughs> uh, get good. Yeah, yeah, you just need some Irish guys in a rowboat. Yeah, you know things have gotten serious when it's like <laughs> seven lads have gone out in a boat, and they're just going to sort it. <laughs> uh, the story was not just national, but international news, making it into the New York Times and even far abroad as the news in New Zealand, as did the failed rescue attempts by the Royal Navy. Hmm. I hope the story of Anglo-Irish animosity brought you some <laughs> anti-English sentiment and some admiration for the oh, balls of those seven guys who are going out there to rescue my great great grandpa when the navy couldn't. Dudes rock. Dudes do in fact Point, rock. And this is the dudes rock right here. This is yeah, this they is should the rename it to rock. dudes rock. <laughs> <laughs> Put a plaque on there. Yeah. yeah. This is the rock of dudes. Yes. <laughs> this is the rock upon which I will build my dude. <laughs> they call me Peter, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You have to deny your dude three times Peter, before Peter the, of dude. the crying of the cock, yeah. 
This uh, Simon who should be called dude. Simon who shall be called dude, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking safety third. Yes. Shake hands for danger. Our next episode will be on the Boston Molasses disaster. Does anyone have any commercials before we go? Uh, Trash Future, Kill James Bond, 10,000 Losses, Franklin. Uh, Lions yeah. Love by Donkeys. Yes. Lions Love by Donkeys. I was on Alan Fisher's show uh, today, so maybe you should, hmm. you should watch that one. Uh, we just uh, ranted about stuff for a while, because nice. he's got 100,000 subscribers now, uh, which we don't. Uh, so subscribe yeah, subscribe to, our, to the fucking thing. Yeah, I want the plaque. The I want so the plaque. Yeah. plaque. I also want yeah, the He plaque. had a plaque before us. I know you mm. have to like pay for extra plaques, so yeah. like one of you gets the free plaque and then like the other two of us will have to pay for our plaques, but I do want a plaque. I don't care. Yes. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, it's a podcast. That was a podcast. Outstanding. Uh, yep.